So if you were here with us in worship last week, undoubtedly you will remember. Or let me have my bets here. Hopefully you will remember that we read together Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, a passage that is known as the parable of the sower. And you will remember, hopefully, that in that parable, Jesus talked about a seemingly reckless farmer that took the seeds that he needed to plant, and he just took those seeds and scattered them across the landscape without any seeming care as to whether they landed on good soil or on bad soil. And then, and then, and then we concluded from that that it wasn't that the farmer was wasteful or careless or just really, 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 really bad at his job, but we concluded that the farmer did that because he knew that the only chance, the only hope that that bad soil had of ever producing fruit was his continued sowing of it. Right? So, so the meaning of the parable, of course, being that, that God does not give up on us, no matter how seemingly hopeless or how seemingly lacking in potential we may be. It's one of the very simple, very beautiful teachings of Jesus Christ. And then in today's passage, exactly one chapter later, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, we discover that these are not just empty words. Jesus wasn't just blowing hot air. He wasn't just speaking feel-good spiritual nonsense. We discovered that, that the parable of the sower is a teaching about the actual character of God. We discovered that it is a statement about the actual way Jesus carried out and conducted his early ministry. And I say that because the, the soil that we find in today's story, that is the person in, in the situation that we discover in this morning's reading, if ever there was soil that would be considered bad by a good Jewish boy like Jesus, if ever there was a person or situation that a good Jewish boy like Jesus uh, would be would consider to be entirely lacking in potential, it was the man and the situation that we find in this morning's reading. So as we've been working our way through Mark these past couple months, uh, we've been talking a lot about the purity, Jewish purity laws, uh, those codes in Jewish life, both from the Bible and from custom, uh, that determine what is holy, what is not holy, what is clean, what is unclean. So we've talked some about clean and unclean foods. We've talked some about diseases that would cause someone to become unclean, like leprosy. Uh, we've talked about entire classes of people, like tax collectors, who were deemed so morally corrupt that just sharing a table with them, just eating a meal with them, would cause you to become unclean. Well, today's passage... Today's passage packs in it a quadruple whammy of this uncleanliness. So our story opens this morning with Jesus 
disembarking from his boat in a place called Gerasenes. Now, that place name is significant to us only because it means that Jesus is no longer in Jewish-controlled territory. He is now in the land of the Gentiles. That is, he is in the land of foreigners who do not worship the Jews' God. They worship foreign gods. And for that reason, to a good Jewish boy like Jesus, he would have considered the very ground on which he was standing. The sand, the rocks, the weeds, the ground on which he trod would have been considered unclean. So that's a first layer of uncleanliness that we have in the story. And I've got to say, that's a pretty big layer of it. Secondly, we discover in this story that the particular location where Jesus and his posse come ashore, we discover that is, it is a graveyard. Now, we're not told which of the disciples was steering this vessel, uh, but we can be assured that, that after this he was relieved of that responsibility. Uh, because graveyards were considered to be unclean places in the Jewish imagination. So that's a second layer of uncleanliness that we have going on in this passage. And then thirdly, we're told that on a hillside nearby, minding their own business, just grazing away, there is a large herd of pigs. And when I say a large herd of pigs, I'm not talking about 10 pigs. I'm not talking about 20 pigs, not 100 pigs. There are 2,000 pigs up there on the hillside. Now, even if you have never read the Bible, you should just know from life, from having interacted with different people, that that pigs, delicious though they may be, these are the, the quintessential unclean animal in the Jewish consciousness. So if one pig is considered unclean, you better believe that 2,000 pigs were like a, like a carpet bomb of uncleanliness over this landscape. Right? So that is a third layer of uncleanliness that we have going on in this story. And then fourthly and finally, we're told that the minute that Jesus set foot on this unclean Gentile territory, he encounters a man who has in him a unclean spirit. Not to mention that this man is naked as the day he was born when he shows up in front of Jesus. So what he means by an unclean spirit is that he is possessed by a demon. And in fact, later we find out that he is, he is possessed by a whole host of demons. So this unclean spirit, that is a fourth layer of uncleanliness that we have going on in this story. So this is all to say that, that to a good Jewish boy like Jesus, if ever there was bad soil, if ever there was a person or a situation that we could be considered hopeless or lacking in all potential, it was this man with an unclean spirit living in an unclean graveyard located in an unclean, pig-infested, God-forsaken Gentile country. This is as worse as it possibly can be. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't really seem to care, does he? He just kind of hops off his boat 
And this guy sees him from a distance, this man with an unclean spirit, sees him from a distance, runs up to him, throws himself down on the ground. And in what is perhaps the, the most heart-wrenching detail of this story, Jesus asks the man his name. And the man doesn't respond that his name is Elijah or David. He doesn't say, say that his name is Lenny or Billy Bob. He doesn't give his actual name. He gives instead the demon's name. Right? It seems that he is so swallowed up by this thing living inside him uh, that he has lost his entire identity. So Jesus asks the man his name. The demon from within him says that his name is Legion. Now, of course, a legion is a unit of the Roman army consisting of about 6,000 soldiers. And suggesting to us that that inside this man, there's not just one demon, but there are about 6,000. There's a whole horde of demons that are possessing this man's heart. And so Jesus, right away, he tries to do one of his normal exorcisms. We've seen this numerous times in Mark. Tries to cast him out normally, like he's been doing. But but then there's this little detail that, that commentators aren't really sure what to make of. But this demon, this legion, actually haggles with Jesus. He says, you know, I don't really want to just, just be exercised from this guy. Uh, I want to be moved. I want to be transferred. I want to leave this guy and, and, and put us over in that herd of pigs up there on the hill. And I, I think in what we can agree was a somewhat questionable decision on Jesus' part. Jesus says, sure, let's do that. And so he does. The, the demon picks up, moves out of the man, goes to that herd of pigs on the hill, enters into those pigs, and they rush headlong off of a nearby cliff into the waters below where they drown. So the herdsmen who were up in that field with those pigs are, are obviously a little bit disturbed about what has just happened. Uh, so they run into town and they tell anybody and everyone who would listen about what they had just seen. And so a large crowd turns out to this graveyard to see if this man was telling the truth, because quite frankly, it sounded like crazy talk. But they get there and they discover not just, you know, 2,000 pigs bobbing around in the water. But they also find this man, this once demon-possessed man, now clothed, sitting calmly, and entirely restored to his right mind. But these people, these people aren't thankful for the service that Jesus has just rendered to their friend and to their neighbor. Uh, nor surprisingly are they angry about Jesus for basically wiping out the town's economy. That's 2,000 pigs. That was their livelihood. That is gone. Uh, but they don't really seem angry about that fact either. Instead, they're just kind of afraid. Who is this guy who can control demons, cast them into pigs, and wipe out an economy in the course of two minutes? They're afraid of Jesus and this display of power that he showed. And so, they ask him to leave. And Jesus packs up, hops back into his boat with his disciples, 
and goes back from whence he came. So to summarize, Jesus and the disciples come by ship from a distant land. They come to this Gentile territory. They land. They heal one demon-possessed man. And then they are asked to leave. They hop back on their boat and return to their home. It's as if, it's as if, isn't it, that, that Jesus came to this Gentile territory, healed this one seemingly hopeless man, caught up in seemingly hopeless circumstances. It's as if that was the sole purpose, the sole point of this journey. When asked to leave, he just hopped back in his boat. No questions asked. When asked to leave, he hopped back in his boat. No questions asked because traveling to this dirty, unclean, spiritually defiling land and healing this one seemingly helpless person caught up in a seemingly hopeless situation was, it was the sole purpose of this journey. Now, if you are the kind of person who right now, for whom right now, life is going really well, things are just really, you have a job that you love. Your relationships and your family life, they're, they're going strong. Your social life is on point. Your bank account is in the black. You have a lot of awesome stuff that you keep in your really awesome apartment. And on the weekends, you do really awesome things. If that is the case, if that is you, if that is how your life is going right now, then I have to admit that this story was probably pretty boring for you, and you're not going to get a lot out of it. But if it turns out that that is not you, and you're at a point in your life where you're, as we say in the church, you're going through a season, things aren't going that good for you. Your relationships are on the rocks. Your family life is dysfunctional on the very best of days. Your social life, what is that? The only thing black about your bank account is the ink on the overdraft notices that the bank has been sending you. Things are not going well. You're you're struggling. You're struggling with mental health issues with depression, with grief. You're in the throes of addictions that maybe even those closest to you don't know anything about. If that is you, if even just one of those things was you, I hope to God that you were paying attention to this story this morning. Because what the story this morning is telling us is that there is no person, there is no place, there is no situation that is unreachable by God's love. What the story is telling us this morning is that there is nowhere God will not go to reach and free and sustain and heal those who are broken and despairing. 
that's what this story is telling us this morning. And what's more, what this story is telling us is that God specifically seeks out people who are in seemingly hopeless situations, people with no potential in their lives whatsoever. He seeks these people out to make his love known to them the most. In the words of our parable last week, God seeks out the bad soil so that God may sow those seeds of love in that soil and that that soil may bear fruit. And I recognize if you are a person in one of these really rough, struggling situations, uh, that is a message that, that you may not be able to receive this morning. It may be a message that, that takes time until you really begin to feel its truth in your life. And I think the good news for you this morning is that we meet here every Sunday, same time, same place. So come back next week, and we're going to tell you this message again and again and again, not just until you feel that truth working in your life, but really until the truth of God's love becomes for you the deepest truth of your life. And if you're one of those people for whom everything is just going swimmingly, everything is just, as they say, ducky. If you are one of those people, I I guarantee that there are people in your life who need to hear this message, who need to hear this message about God's love. And so for you, I need you to be a messenger, and I need you to speak this message far. I need you to speak this message wide. I need you to speak this message to those who need to hear it the most. That is what our God does for us. And so that is what we who are made in God's image do for each other. In the sweet name of Jesus, amen.